silver steamboat works its way down the river. Two men at the rails and a lady in tow. They open a bag of fresh kiwi and vinegar chips by Gilbo Efrids. Kiwi and vinegar chips. Buy them at your local corner store or deli. Gilboa Fruits. Yeah. Welcome, everybody, to a special episode of The Weird. I hear people knocking down the door trying to get in on this episode. Well, let me tell you, folks, the door is wide open. You are all welcome to join Riley and I and our special guest, who's a returning co-contributor of the show. It's going to be a wild and spectacular night. Without further ado, welcome back, Sean Tucker. Oh, Dan, thank you. What a lovely, lovely introduction. I'm so excited to be back and uh, taking part in the 51st episode today. 51st? Yeah, well, we did Zodiac. That was 49 and then 50, and then we took the break, and now we're back. We've been doing shows um, yeah. in between. Yeah, we kind of just went with it, ran with the ball. We, we what? We, yeah, sorry, mm. leave. Uh, this is unbelievable. I Wow. I didn't want to. Dan made me. I made him. I held him at knife point. Several knives. Yeah, that's how he rolls. I'm actually emotional right now. This is... Uh, <laughs> well, Sean, I I understand that you... No, have I'm going to need another minute, Dan. This is... Uh, this is a kick in the gut. I'm not. I'm not joking. I'm okay, very... well, let him be. Let him be, Dan. You're such a bully. We should bring up the fact that this is actually episode number eighty, which is holy um... shit. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's which like is... ten more episodes. Or... <laughs> it's kind of a milestone. Eighty is a big deal. Yeah. I'm just joking. <laughs> I listened to the last episode, the Exorcism of George Lucas. It was fantastic. I, I wish it had been the exorcism of George Lucas, and then he could make good films again. <laughs> Speaking of which, we're doing a run through Star Wars with my family. My daughter doesn't really remember uh, a lot of the Star Wars films, so we're starting uh, from the beginning, like from the from the like from the narrative beginning with those three crappy films with Hay Hayden Christensen. Correct. I will say this though: the Phantom Menace. Prior to this viewing, I would have said it was the worst. Uh, we just watched Attack of the Clones. It by far is the worst film. It's the space picnic. It kills it. What's the space picnic? With Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman. Oh, yeah. The dialogue is terrible and the acting is wooden. I, I don't, I would love to have known what happened, what magic that happened during Hayden Christensen's audition. Because like, honestly, that boy is just wooden. He's, and he's been wooden in everything I've ever seen him do. Even that one where he was, his father was dying or whatever, and they built the house. It, it worked in that one. It worked in that one, right? He got away with it because he was supposed to be emotionally reserved and stuff. I thought he was pretty good in Jumper. I like that movie. I, I mean, the the writing in the there's very good actors in in those yep. three movies that that have a hard time selling that dialogue. And you know, George Lucas admits mm -hmm. dialogue is not exactly a, a, a strong suit. And no. the original trilogy, other than the first one, he co-wrote them, right? And I think he was on his own uh, in those three. And uh, great story guy, dialogue not so much. 
I wonder if we should consider at some point, I don't know if we ever have time to do like a movie thing because we're all really passionate about it. We shouldn't. Mm -hmm. But the best Star Wars content now is the stuff that's on, I mean, The Mandalorian. And I personally liked Boba Fett. I know a lot of people uh, were kind of on the fence about it. And I saw the Kenobi trailer today. I don't know if you guys saw that. It came out today. Yeah, I don't yet, no. It looks amazing. I can't wait. Fantastic. I'm feeling a little um, saturated by it, though. Same way I'm feeling with Star Trek right now. I just I just need a break from all this shit. All of it. I need a break from Batman and Spider-Man and all of these. No, especially those. I, I need a new narrative. I need a new narrative. Well, speaking of a new narrative, let's jump into tonight's new narrative. Sean, you have a very interesting topic uh, and story that you're going to be sharing with us. Why don't you take it away? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... I think it's interesting it's you know I, I hope people are interested by it i don't i don't know before we start i gotta i gotta ask this is that thing behind you a goalie net no it's a basketball net okay yeah i like to shoot hoops while i'm doing podcasts well i'm asking talented that's very joe rogan <laughs> yeah it's very love him um, i heard you guys doing the joe rogan experience last time so yeah so i i don't know how exciting it is i don't know if it's titanic exciting or richie edwards or zodiac exciting but i mean it's uh you know it's a topic that dan had asked me to do and normally i like to pick my own topics but it was kind of keen to try something different and dive in you know research wise so way to sell this one up Sean, one shot. more thing. Sean, one more thing. Um, mm. I know that you're a big fan of the topic. So did Dan do um, Jack the Ripper justice? I haven't heard Jack the Ripper. When did he do Jack the Ripper? It was the first episode of, of the season. You're joking. No, we're not joking. <laughs> No. The first episode of the season. I thought the exorcism of George Lucas was. No. I was supposed to do the Jack the Ripper with you guys. Well, he did it. So 30 episodes without me and one of them is Jack. That This just keeps getting better and better. I will listen to it and I will let you know. He, he didn't want me involved because he knows how much I know about it. Do you know a lot about it? Almost as much as about the Titanic. Thanks a lot, Riley, you shit disturber. Okay, well, I'm excited to listen to it now. I didn't realize I'd missed one. I thought the uh, the exorcism one was the first one. No, back. Jack the Ripper, there's like letters written in it. In it, He reads letters with music behind it. It's very shishi. Keep going with your story here. All right. Okay, so I'll dive in a little bit of background information. So uh, DB was born in uh, Shoreham, New York. Whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't tell them what you're doing. Uh, well, I'm going to get to it. I want to build some suspense and then dive Oh, in. you're doing a kind of tricky narrative. Yeah, just let him talk. What's wrong with you are you on drugs today Riley? so let's let's see if they can figure out who it is because it's a little obscure so yeah dan so db was born in shoreham new york on november the 14th 1961 attended tulane in new york university in 1990 he started his treplev in joe F jeff cohen's contemporary adaptation of anton chekhov's the seagull on an off-broadway theater starring with the then unknown uh Lori, laura linney my apologies making her new york stage debut is Nina. New York Times called DB's performance bold and exciting. And he guest starred on a television series, The Edge of Night and Spencer for Hire. Uh, you know him from films like Gardens of Stone, Memphis Bell, and a little- Fire in the Sky. Fire in the Sky. Sean. What? 
you talking about D.B. Sweeney? Yeah, that's who you told me to do. No, I did not. I told you D.B. Cooper. D.B. Sweeney, there's not even a mystery around D.B. Sweeney. Well, yeah, his career tanked and everybody wonders why. Well, I wouldn't say he disappeared, but I mean, he did have uh, kind of a down period where, you know, I think he ended up on the O.C. eventually. I didn't actually get that far in my research. Did he end up on the O.C.? Yeah. Yes. Well, the hell is D.B. Cooper? No, I texted you. I said D.B. Cooper. I thought it was D.B. Sweeney as well because he did fire in the sky and I did actually a podcast, a whole podcast about oh that event. God. Yeah. Okay. Right here. So, Hey Sean, we're, you're covering DB Sweeney. <laughs> oh my God. Did you really do all this research on DB Sweeney? I wasn't supposed to do DB Sweeney. No, DB Cooper. Who's DB Cooper? That sounds boring. All right. Yes, I did DB Cooper. <laughs> this was all. This was all for you, for your benefit, Riley. And you didn't take the bait at any moment. You just sat there. Like, Who's DB Cooper? Yes, let's. Let's do DB Sweeney. <laughs> I love that Riley was like, fire in the sky. He's totally on board with a podcast about an actor. Sean and I talked on the phone about this. We strategized. No, DB uh, Sweeney uh, was destined for A-list and something happened to his career. He made a bad call or something. I don't know, but he was, he was being talked about and his performance in Fire in the Sky was actually really fucking good. When he's under the kitchen table crying. He, it was very good, but this is not... The reaction we thought we were going to get. Now I'm disappointed. Uh, well, this is a great start. <laughs> First, I find out I'm 30 episodes behind and uh, that you did Jack the Ripper without me. And now my DB Sweeney bit flopped. This can only get better. It can only exactly. go up. Who's up for some DB Cooper? I am. Okay. So, DB Cooper, around 4 p.m. on November the 24th, on the eve of American Thanksgiving in the United States, which is where American, I'm really off to a great start here. Uh, a man calling himself Dan Cooper purchased a one way ticket to Seattle Tacoma Airport for $20 at the Portland International Airport. And this was November the 24th, 1971. He sat in an aisle seat, 18C, and the flight departed at 4.35 p.m. There were 36 passengers in the flight manifest that day. That did not include the crew, which compri uh, was comprised of the pilot, Captain William Scott, First Officer Bob Radizak, the flight engineer H.E. Anderson, and two flight attendants, Tina Mucklau and Florence Schaffner. And the plane was a Boeing 727-100. Now, Cooper, uh, physical description, unassuming, drew little notice from the other passengers. He was a middle-aged white male, thought to be in his mid-40s. He was wearing a plain business suit and a black tie and was carrying a briefcase. After takeoff, Cooper put on a pair of dark sunglasses. Cooper ordered a bourbon and soda, and after the plane was in the air, he handed Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant, a note. And uh, apparently wasn't uncommon in those days for men to hand notes with hotel room numbers and phone numbers to flight attendants. Uh, it was the 70s when public smoking and sexual harassment were at their peak. Uh, <clears throat> it was the 70s, okay? Schaffner thought nothing of it and slipped the note in her pocket without even looking at it. And the next time she passed Cooper, he waved her over, told her, Miss, you better look at the note. I have a bomb. Okay, now wait a minute, wait a minute. You know how we do this on this I show. I know. I, see, I want to do the voices like Dan does it, but every time I do it, I sound like Batman from the Lego movie. <laughs> Miss, you better look at the note. I have a bomb. I'm Batman. 
<laughs> you, do, <laughs> you do sound like Batman from the Lego movie. <laughs> I know. That's why I don't do the voices. Plus, I wasn't there. It was two years before I was born. Jeez, Riley. Miss, you better look at the note. I have a bomb. How's that? Is that like yeah, that? that's good. That's good. All right, yeah. let's go with that and put some kind of crazy filter on it and post, Riley. Most of my performances on film and on podcasts get fixed in post. It's the only way any of them are watchable or listenable. So okay. here we go. Okay. Schaffner read the note and then showed it to the other flight attendant. They took it to the cockpit and showed it to William Scott, who we all remember was the pilot. After reading the note, Scott contacted air traffic control, who then contacted the Seattle police, who then contacted the FBI. And then the FBI informed the airline's president, Donald Nyrop, who ordered them to comply with Cooper's demands. Now, the handwritten ransom or demand note was asking for $200,000 in American currency, two parachutes. Some people report it. I've read a bunch of stuff that said it was four parachutes, but it was technically two because it was two shoots and then two reserve shoots, which I guess is standard when you're jumping out of a plane, which I have never done. Have either of you? No. Uh, yes, that 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 does make sense. You have your main shoot and a reserve shoot in the that is deployed in the event that your main shoot does not. Makes sense. But it was the 70s and they were smoking inside. So maybe they were, you know, living on the edge. Can I ask you a question? Just a, cl- a clarification question. So he's demanding these things? Demanding. It was in the note. Yes. And it was a handwritten note. Okay. Okay. So we're we're good. And we're I'll get good. to the note a little bit more later. I'm just setting the stage here, Dan. I'm not asking you to tap dance all across it. I'm just setting the stage. Very Jazz good. hands. So it's the same sound effect as you typing. Perfect. All right. <laughs> so, all right. Cooper wanted these items waiting on arrival at the Seattle Tacoma airport and stated if these demands were not met, he would blow up the plane. Mm-hmm. The note also contained the phrase, no funny business. <laughs> okay. Not to be confused with no monkey business, which is funny business conducted by monkeys, I always assumed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cooper did show Schaffner the bomb. He basically called her over. He opened his suitcase, or briefcase, I should say, sorry, and recall, uh, she recalled that it appeared to be dynamite, cylinders, and wires. He showed it to her pretty quickly, so she couldn't tell. I mean, she's not a bomb expert, so who knows, but it looked real enough to scare her. So Cooper then told Schaffner to instruct the pilots to stay in the air until the chutes and the cache were ready below. One thing that uh, she mentioned, Cooper never raised his voice, never became agitated or heated to the point that the passengers were even aware that there was a hijacking taking place. Isn't that bizarre? 36 people. Nobody had a clue what was happening. That's very odd. That is odd. And so he's asking for these things to be on the ground in Seattle? Yes. So the flight, just to set the stage for us, uh, would be the equivalent of flying Ottawa to Toronto. It's like a 40 minute flight. It's one of those short business flights that, you know, which is why a guy in a business suit and a tie, I mean, they saw that every day because they're just doing commutes for business, right? So Yeah, and, and security back then was not the ridiculousness it is now. Not no. even close. So we're no. gonna get in we're gonna get into that. You wouldn't believe how lax it was. So the pilot, uh, like I said, the, the passengers had no idea that there was a hijacking taking place. Uh the crew and the the flight attendants were remained calm, so they didn't alert the passengers. Uh, The pilot informed the passengers over the intercom that there was a mechanical issue with the plane and that 
it would require them to burn fuel before landing, which is why they circled above for about two hours while they were getting everything ready. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a plane and the pilot comes on and says a mechanical issue and they need to burn fuel... I mean, that would freak me out. It's because I know why, too, because we deal with this sometimes is the plane is just too heavy. Yeah. And so um, they need to burn off fuel to reduce the weight for a safe landing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, makes sense. I always thought, well, if it crashes, there's less fuel. Hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So, Riley, you're saying that, that sometimes if they have to make an early stop somewhere that they'll burn off fuel before landing because it throws the plane is too heavy yeah and sometimes they'll jettison fuel right so oh really if they're over the ocean and stuff yeah so one other little point about that uh little side note is the whole time the two hours that they were circling they did it above water and i've read that uh Apparently, they did this because if he had blown the plane up, it wouldn't land in a populated area yeah. and kill people Makes sense. below. So, at five twenty-four, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> at five twenty-four p.m., the uh, the plane landed. Uh, the ground team had the cash and the parachutes ready to go, and informed the captain that it was thumbs up uh, on Cooper's demands. They were able to get everything in place uh, from a bank that apparently kept a ransom reserve. That's how bank robberies and hijackings were so common in the States then. They actually had that. They tried to get a couple of shoots from a local military base, and he didn't want them. So they actually secured them from a local flight school. So they were more, uh, they weren't the military-grade parachutes, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. Cooper ordered that they taxi to a remote well-lit area after they landed. He also ordered that the person who was bringing the cash and the parachutes come unaccompanied. A Northwest airline employee drove a company vehicle to the plane. He ordered the flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, to lower the stairs. Employee carried the parachutes uh, up and handed them over to Mucklow. Then the employee brought the cash over in a large bank bag. And this will be important later on. Uh, Once the demands were met, he he actually released all 36 passengers. I was going to ask you that. He did, except for the crew. He didn't release the crew. He did release the 36 passengers and one of the flight attendants, who was Florence Schaffner, which was the woman that he originally had given the note to and showed the bomb to. Interesting. Yes, and she. Hmm. he kept the other uh, flight attendant, who was actually, I think she was 21 at the time. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I'd crap my pants now but that's going to stay with you yeah and it has i read a there's a a very good role i'm not going to get too much into her and what happened to her after she actually became a nun later so she did really uh but uh there's a big rolling stone interview about her and what happened to her life and how it changed her course after that but do that on your own time gentle listener uh, because we don't have time for that right now yeah look gentle listener stop being selfish Learn about D.B. Sweeney and this flight attendant on your own time. Yeah, well, they actually got married. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> Can you that's where the D.B. Sweeney yeah, time that's is. that's right. That's okay. right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so, yes, he didn't release Tina Mucklow uh, or the flight crew, so he kept them. And the flight crew remained in the cockpit the only time, uh, the whole time. The only, the only two members, well, the only two people on the plane that had any sort of interaction with them at all were the two flight attendants. 
the people must have known on the plane that something was up when they were taxied off to a weird hangar and held in the plane. And No, I think they were, as soon as he got the money and they brought the stuff, I'm sure at that point they kind of started figuring it out. But until they were on the ground, they had no idea what yeah, was going on. Yeah, that's what I mean, though. Once they were on the ground, that must have like been odd. And when you think about it, very smart, not just from a panic or, you know, type of thing, but also nobody's looking at him. You know what I mean? Nobody's sitting there. You don't have 36 people who have uh, identification and, you know, are memorizing every detail about him. So nobody was actually paying attention to him, which was extremely smart on his part. Yeah, everything was quiet. Mm -hmm. That's right. Exactly. He blended completely in. Absolutely. And, you know, it's also when he did it. I don't know if that was intentional as well, but it's, you know, it's the night before Thanksgiving, you know, which is Thanksgiving in the States is almost a bigger holiday than Christmas. It's huge. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. They absolutely love it. So, uh, you know, probably people, the, you wonder if the timing was because people's thoughts would be excited to get home and, you know, the holidays and, you know, I never actually thought of that until we started yeah. talking about it. Well done. We're solving it together. See? <laughs> this is like Encyclopedia <laughs> Brown. Okay. Uh, an FAA official. We know what FAA is. That's the Federal, yes, Federal Aviation Administration. There we go. Official contacted the captain, asked Cooper for permission to come aboard the jet. So they wanted to talk to him a little bit about uh, the consequences of hijacking a plane and uh, air piracy. And he flat out turned them down. He denied the request. So the plane refueled, took off once again. Cooper had Mucklow read over the instruction card for operation of the aft stairs in the back of the plane. Cooper then told the crew that he wanted to go to Mexico City. The pilot explained to them to him at that altitude and airspeed he uh, that he wanted to travel at the jet wouldn't be able to travel more than a thousand miles even with 52,000 gallons of fuel. So in agreement with Cooper, the pilot and him, they agreed to make another stop and to refuel once again before heading to Mexico in Reno, Nevada. Okay. After takeoff, Cooper ordered uh, Mucklow, the flight attendant, to go to the cockpit, close the curtain, and for the rest of the crew to stay in the cockpit for the remainder of the flight. So this actually changed because of this. There was no people in the cockpit door at that time in 1971. There is now, but that was changed because of this incident. Uh, no remote cameras installed in the plane at the time, so the crew had no idea at all what he was up to in the back there. At 8 p.m., a red light uh, gave warning that a door in the plane was open in the back. Scott asked Cooper, Scott being the pilot, over the intercom if there was anything they could do for him. He replied quickly and curtly, no. And that was the last word anyone ever heard from Dan Cooper. Amazing. Uh, at 8.24 p.m., the crew recalled experiencing uh, an oscillation or like a, a bounce or a dip in the tail end. It's uh, as if the nose had dipped first, followed by a correcting dip in the tail end. And what they surmised that was from was kind of like him using those aft stairs as almost like a diving board. So it went down and then it came up. And because it was open and there was nobody on the plane, it had that much of an effect on the plane. God. Yeah. So uh, Scott noted at that time the spot where the dip took place. It was 25 miles north of Portland near the Lewis River. And the crew stayed in the cockpit for the remainder of the flight, as I said. At 10.15 p.m., the jet landed in Reno, Nevada. Scott spoke over the intercom, asked him, you know, questions, hello, 
received no response. The crew exited the cabin, still worried about the bomb, obviously. Yeah. And one thing that Mucklow, this, this actually made me laugh. One thing Mucklow had recalled while relaying the instructions on how to how to lower the aft stairs to Cooper, she said to him, "Please take the bomb with you." Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's awesome. Please take the bomb with you. Oh, that's so uh, perfect. Yeah, no kidding. Good advice. Uh, so when the crew entered the cabin, it was empty. Cooper, along with the money, all of his belongings uh, were gone. The only thing left was the second parachute and his black clip-on tie with a tie clip. Plane's huh. completely empty. So no one knows for sure if Cooper survived or not. All searches on the terrain below along the flight path, uh, searches that lasted weeks, months with people in the air and on the ground proved uh, fruitless. They recovered nothing. No trace of DB Cooper was ever found. To this day, which it's now 50 years after the fact, 51 years almost, this is the only case of hijacking or air piracy in the United States that remains unsolved. Wow. Wow. Can, can I ask, uh, you may have said this already, but did you did you mention the altitude that they were flying at? Uh, I will talk about that. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, he specifically asked them to remain below ten thousand feet okay. for a very very. So it is a safe reason. jumping height that they yeah, were. At. So okay. yeah, we'll get, we'll get into that. Sure. Um, so first impressions, thoughts, any other questions? I love the fact that he left behind a clip-on tie. I thought that I thought that that was kind of interesting. I love too. the era of the clip-on tie. I wish the clip-on tie was still a thing because it's wonderful. It's always the right length. You just clip that shit on and away you go. You know you know what I miss is the, you remember the, I never had one, but uh, you remember the, the mock, the turtleneck or the dicky that went <gasps> Yeah, though, I had one. That went underneath, but it wasn't an actual turtleneck. They still make them for women. Um, no, I was going to say about what you've said so far. Mm -hmm. It's he certainly sounds like a professional. Mm -hmm. I would say that the fact that he didn't want the military shoot, but rather wanted a civilian shoot, tells me perhaps that he had practiced with civilian shoots. So I, I it tells me that maybe he wasn't military. He it also sounds like he really was well organized and thought this thing out. Didn't want to hurt anybody. I also find it odd that he wanted. Two, only $200,000. If you're going to go to all this trouble, that's not even life. Even in 19, was it 72? That's not life-changing money. That's no. good money, but not life-changing money. So I read with inflation and that, you know, uh, what yeah. it would uh, equate to today, it would be the equivalent of $1.25 million. Yeah, it's good money, but it's not like going to, you're not going to retire forever off that. I believe there are reasons for for that that okay. have to do with the actual jump itself. So we're gonna get into that a little bit as well. Interesting. The burning question in the back of my mind right now, and I'm dying for you to answer it, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but whatever, is did they immediately go and investigate all of the possible jumping schools they could? No, they didn't. But that's a great question. Because he obviously had to know how to jump properly, right? Yes. Yeah. So there's, we're, we are gonna get into that. So there's two schools, obviously, or two, you know, two groups essentially which are people that think he died that he didn't walk away from this and people that think he you know walked out of the wilderness and you know survived and went on to live uh, a life with the money but yeah so when we get into the suspects the way they broke down so we're going to get into one of the things that dan mentioned was how well planned out it seemed 
uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, the things that he thought of. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment, a bit of a deeper dive into that. And that'll lead us uh, to the suspects and what their backgrounds were and why they were suspects. And as Riley said, it does have a lot to do with uh, military backgrounds and jumping and, you know, paratroopers and, and that sort of thing. Would he be dead now? He would. No, he could be in his 90s. So at the time, people guessed their impression was that he was about mid-40s, like about 45 years old, which would make him almost 96 now. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so the chances are slim. Slim, but a possibility. Okay, I'm just wondering if someone like that pulled off something that's so incredibly well known that maybe he would have left behind, you know, in his will saying, send this letter to the New York Times once I'm dead. And it would say, hey, I'm the guy, but that's just me. When we get into the suspects, we're going to talk a little bit about stuff like that as well. Not that specifically, but, um, you know, in that neighborhood for sure. Okay. Shall we press on? Yep. Super dupes. Okay. So the police, this actually makes me, this makes me laugh. Uh, The police immediately began searching criminal records in the area for the name Dan Cooper. Okay. So when he got on the plane, all you had to do was fill out this little card and that was his ticket and the name Dan Cooper was on it. You didn't even have to show ID? No ID. Wow. Uh, you know, insane. Um, they immediately started looking for Dan Cooper in the local area on the off chance that the hijacker who had planned this thing so meticulously would be dumb enough to use his real name. So this was 1971. Uh, if you watch any of the countless documentaries, you can see the actual card that he had filled out with the name Dan Cooper uh, in his handwriting. And there was, as Dan said, no ID required. He paid the $20 in cash the morning of. He bought the ticket right there, not in advance. Got on the plane, no metal detectors, no luggage search, no security. Just grab a carton of cigarettes to blow in the face of the person beside you and away <laughs> you go type thing. When did metal detectors go into use? Uh, it was pretty soon after that. This it was eh? okay. changed uh, a lot of things, but we'll talk a little really? bit about that too. Okay. Yeah. But at this point, it's amazing to me. You could just get on the plane with, you know, no ID. Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah I'm, I can't. I can't imagine. I find getting on a plane now ridiculous. And it just blows my mind that a few people have managed to screw up the whole world in such an effective way. Like, for example, us taking off our shoes and the whole shoe business and not being able to have anything above 100 milliliters on a plane is all because of that one person. One person changed Mm -hmm. everything. Like, it just really bothers me that that, that, that that's the way the world is, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm that's what bothers you is that you can't, you have to go through a few extra hoops to get on a plane. You're a monster. When I went to London last time, I had to go buy everything because I couldn't bring anything in my carry-on that was over hundred milliliters. It's, it's, it's stupid and inconvenient. And then I had to throw it away before I came home. Like your colognes. No, like just stuff to wash my face and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, I think, and take off your shoes and do this. And, and I find it very stressful. I know a lot of people do. I, I, I know someone that used to work at airport security and they say every hour they have two to three people having panic attacks because it is so stressful. Yeah, I could see it. Sure. Little yeah, kids find it terrifying. I mean, it is a very militaristic, intense experience. And in some airports, it's even worse, like traveling in Europe where they, they're carrying the machine guns in the airport. Yeah. It's something that would else. freak you out for sure. Okay. So back at this, when they ran the name of Dan Cooper uh, against criminal records in the local area, surprise, no luck. And this is the part that makes me laugh. One of their early results did, however, turn up a man named D.B. Cooper, and he was considered a possible suspect. 
and although he was quickly cleared by the police, a member of the press accidentally confused that man's name for the alias given oh, by the hijacker. Okay. And this mistake oh. was then repeated by another reporter quoting the information, and they told two friends, and they told two friends, and they told two friends, until the media was using the name D.B. Cooper, which was considered more catchy, but was at no time ever used by the hijacker or any of the flight crew, flight attendants, or anyone associated with what actually happened on the Seriously. Planet. And so in remarkable journalism, not letting the facts get in the way, uh, for 50 years, he's been known as D.B. Cooper. I was going to ask you, where did the B come from? So there you go. For no reason. No reason. And it's still 50 years, 50 years, 51 years. Well, we are setting the record straight with this episode. It's just D. Cooper, baby. It's just D. Cooper. D. Cooper, I think a, baby. I think everybody in the world thinks he was named D.B. Cooper because that's just become synonymous with this story. And think how, how drastically wow. that has altered D.B. Sweeney's life. Maybe he would have had a very good career. Exactly, exactly, you know? really, exactly. Man, we are really diving in and just figuring out so much together today. It's phenomenal. Poor D.B. Sweeney. I really, I'm, I can't get my head up, away from D.B. Sweeney. I wonder, if him and, I wonder if him and Ali Sheedy go out for lunch and go, what the fuck went wrong? All right, Sean, we're hijacking your episode enough. That's okay. But the D.B. Cooper thing where it's the wrong name is just fun. It, it's funny because it kind of, for me, it kind of links back how I first became interested in D.B. Cooper. And when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time at like video stores and stuff and movie theaters. I went to the movies all the time. And movie posters were so cool when we were yeah. younger. And mm -hmm. that's were. a lost art, I think. Movie, there just seemed like they don't leave the impression that they used to. But the whole reason I know about D.B. Cooper is because there was a movie that came out in 1981 with Robert Duvall and Treat Williams, which oh. was called The Chase for D.B. Cooper or something like that. The it was The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. That was the name of the movie. But it's him diving out of the plane with cash in his hands. He's got a tie on. He's jumping out of the plane in the middle of the day. Like, why be bothered with the details, even in the poster? It's yes, like, seriously. I don't give a shit. You know, it's like... You know what funny thing about this is, and I'm, I'm being serious... Every time I see, used to see the sketch for D.B. Cooper, there's that famous sketch that's done the rounds of him with the sunglasses on. Always reminds me of the Zodiac. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know it has that and, kind and of it, vibe. Because it yeah. doesn't have like a mustache too in those sketches. No, he no. doesn't. But I, I know I know what you mean, Riley. Yeah. And I think it's that's part of the appeal of the story. It's the pursuit of D.B. Cooper. With Zodiac and with, you know. Jack the Ripper. It's the, yeah, that poster. Like, I mean, they don't mm -hmm. do posters like that anymore. Don't know something interesting about posters. Do you know how, um, like, uh, when movie posters changed in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and I didn't know this till I actually bought one. I know the listeners are going to be exhausted by the end of this this episode. Who cares? When they started lightboxing posters, um, because they hadn't lightboxed them up to a point, if you ever buy a poster from the era of lightboxing, they're double sided printed. Oh, interesting. Really? So the negative version is printed on the other side yeah oh wow because if you light box a non-double-sided poster it looks faded out it looks um it just doesn't look right so um light cool. the light boxed posters which are sort of synonymous with the cineplex culture you will see that they're all double-sided interesting yeah that's really cool or at least the big studio ones were because they look great that way 
Yeah, cool. on the weird, we like to call that, and I'm not part of the weird, I'm just a guess, but a fun fact. Why don't we refer to that as a fun fact? Well, and, and Sean, you are part of the weird family. Margot McDonald is as well. Um, D.B. Sweeney. D.B. Sweeney. Yeah. I wanted the acceptance. I wanted to be loved. Pat Morita. Pat Morita just got his honorary membership. He's dead. Mm-hmm. I know, and that was what made it so magical. Mm-hmm. You know, I know people that worked with him, and they said he was an unbearable alcoholic. Really? Yeah. Apparently he was the most unprofessional actor they'd ever worked. Show up late, just reeking of booze and just a nightmare. Because he filmed, a, he did a film in Ottawa. Oh, he did. You're right. It doesn't change how amazing he was in The Karate Kid. And I will well, that's love him. the thing that defines him. And every world, every World War II movie too, where he would be in behind the scenes in the battleship. Write the flight path of this episode, Sean. Get us back on our flight path. Oh, you grumpy old thing. God's sake. Yeah, so the, the story I just told... Uh, basically the history of what happened and the events, just kind of the broad strokes, okay? Uh, which was coincidentally Dan's high school nickname. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Yes. We went there. Uh, so the broad strokes of the story, uh, when, when you do a deeper dive into the finer points, the more detailed version of the story, it really does get quite interesting and it kind of goes to what Dan was saying about how meticulously planned it seemed. And when you find out more of the details, that's just the generalized version of it. When you see how his mind was operating, you really do see how well it was planned. Okay, yeah. So, and that'll lead us to the suspects that are involved in the case through the years as well. So the ransom note. The note uh, was not analyzed for handwriting, uh, handwriting specimen, I can't say that right now, uh, because a hijacker, very, very smart, asked for the note back. He did not let the flight attendant keep oh, the note. Oh, interesting. Jeez, that, see, that's like, that's next level. That's next level. And I don't think the card that I've seen where he filled out his name, I think that might have been filled out by the airline staff. You know, I think he just gave a name. So I don't think they actually have any example of his handwriting. So very smart. He did not allow her to uh, keep it. Because of that, the exact wording is up for debate other than the ransom amount. The wording about American currency uh, has been debated. And the request for parachutes and the term no funny business was definitely on there. That phrase will get more important later when we, uh, we get to some suspects. Cooper smoked eight, eight cigarettes while he was on the plane. These went missing. They disappear. And this is 1971. So before DNA testing uh, was, you know, in the mainstream or even happening at all. So the value of this evidence was not really taken into consideration. They were more concerned about fingerprints and and stuff like that. But, I mean, they would have had his DNA for sure. So these went missing after the fact or did he take them with him? No, he didn't take them. He left them there. Okay. Yeah. So he drank while he was there uh, on the plane. Um, while they were taking off, he apparently it was, they get a free drink. That was one of the things they used to draw people with. You said it was bourbon, didn't you? So he drank two bourbon and sodas. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there have been theories that the smoking and the drinking were vices that he kind of threw out there and faked to throw people off his real identity. And this was kind of based on the the amount of stress of the situation and being in the air for two hours while not really knowing what was happening on the ground below and the fact that he was gonna jump out of a plane at night. You think a real smoker 
under a lot of stress probably would have smoked more than eight cigarettes. So that's what people have said. And the other one, the, the other big thing is the bourbon and soda. Apparently those aren't two things you would ever want to drink together. It's not a very popular drink and by all accounts is pretty disgusting. I was going to oh. say that. I was actually going to say that. Okay. I was trying to imagine what that would taste like. I listened to something regarding this, and one of the things they did in the spirit of D.B. Cooper was they actually had a couple of bourbon and sodas, and they said they were horrible. <laughs> Apparently, they tasted uh-huh. absolutely Yeah. Well, bourbon is a very specific drink anyway. It's not a drink of the masses. I don't think I've ever drank bourbon, to be honest with you. Well, I mean, I have. I have many times. It's uh, it's actually a drink I enjoy, but typically with bourbon... Have you ever met a drink you didn't enjoy? Yes. <laughs> I am not a peach schnapps fan. Oh, we've, we talked about yes, that. Yes, we did. Um, no, so... <laughs> no, I, uh, no, it's a drink typically you would drink neat, or you would have it with a splash of water. That's a, a typical way to drink a, a bourbon. Much like it's like a scotch, right? It's uh, Yeah. Like you drink vodka and soda, but I've never... Yeah, bourbon and soda. I never heard of it until I started researching this. So some more interesting details was theorized that Cooper had chosen this flight not only for the location, but because of the type of jet or plane that was used. He seemed to know a lot about the Boeing 727-100. Uh, he ordered the pilot to remain, and Dan, you had mentioned this earlier, below an altitude of 10,000 feet and to keep the airspeed of the plane below 150 knots. Yeah, because anything over that, he gets ripped apart when he goes out the door. so exactly. An experienced skydiver would apparently easily be able to dive at 150 knots. So the jet was uh, lightweight and would have had no problem flying at uh, such a slow speed through uh, the dense air at 10,000 feet. This goes into the details uh, that I didn't share earlier, but he also directed the captain, uh, captain to depressurize the cabin. So he knew that a person can breathe normally at 10,000 feet and that if the cabin had equalized pressure inside and out, there wouldn't be a a violent gust of wind when the the aft stairs were lowered. So he also knew the functionality of the the aft stairs. When he was asking Mucklow to show him how they work, she said that she didn't think they could be lowered during flight, and he corrected her right away and told her she was absolutely wrong about that. Uh Uh-huh. He did his homework. So when uh, the plane had landed for the ransom money and parachutes and the passengers disembarked, uh, Cooper ordered that they, as I said earlier, taxi to a remote, well-lit area after they landed. And then inside the plane, he had the cabin lights dimmed and ordered that no vehicle should approach the plane. He also had all the the windows closed, the the shutters or shades, um, because of snipers. He was thinking about that. Um, He also ordered that the person who was bringing the cabin and parachutes come unaccompanied and that the plane would be refueled. This is this was interesting to me. Um, they were sitting there for 15 minutes while the plane was being refueled and he knew that the rate of refueling would be 4,000 gallons per minute and that after 15 minutes, the plane should be full and that they were taking too long. Okay, well, that's sending off some alarm bells, right? Yeah, so, uh, and he told them this is taking too long and as soon as he said that, they basically you know, unhooked everything and away they went. He also knew the the route 
that they would fly, which was called Vector 23. And it was a low altitude route, which was safely west of the mountains. And he had demanded that with the pilot. So he knew exactly where he was going. And at one point when they were circling, he had referenced the military base, which I cannot remember the name of right now, that was very, starts with an M, it's an MC, which was very, very close. And apparently that wasn't something a lot of people in the area really even knew it was i guess out of the way but he knew about it Mm. he also requested uh, two parachutes to make authorities think that he was planning on taking a hostage so they would Ah. not tamper with the parachutes okay causing him to fall to his death but he did take the second parachute he did now the interesting thing about the parachutes is one of the parachutes and this wasn't intentional because they got them from a flight school one of the shoots one of the reserve shoots was a dummy shoot that was actually sewn shut and he didn't, oh. I don't know if he noticed that because nobody's obviously found him or talked to him, but uh, he that's not the one he took. So maybe he did know enough about them. But the whole purpose of the two shoots was to ensure that, you know, they're not going to kill a civilian. So they're not going to tamper with the shoots. So all of these details, you know, would believe that he had put a lot of planning into this and that this wasn't a, a fly by the seat of your pants type of operation. That's no pun intended. That's a total terrible dad joke. Yep. I apologize to the listeners. Disgusting. To dads across the world and mm-hmm. to the people that listen to dad jokes. And to think it's going to be Father's Day this June. <laughs> I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. Fly by the seat of your pants and no one will know what I'm talking about. Happy Father's Day. Yeah. Fuck. Dan, stop putting your wine down on the table and going, kabog. Yeah, like Dan ever puts the wine down. Dan, you keep going. Stop putting your wine I down. I had a nice soft landing for it, and I thought that it was... Are you hearing it too, Sean? Yeah, that's why I got the shock mount now, <laughs> Riley. All right, I have moved my wine glass. I have moved my wine glass to the side table next to me. There you go. Why don't you just get one of those camelbacks with the straw? Mm-hmm. Good idea. Or a wine sack helmet. Or what? Yeah, one of those hard hats with two straws. I like the, the wine sack helmet. This is my daughter, wine sack helmet. Hello. Wine sack helmet. That's a lovely I don't know name. what I'm talking about. That'll look good on a t shirt. What's the name of my daughter? Wine sack helmet. <laughs> All right. Should we uh, get back? Viking name. <laughs> What's that fucking Viking show that everybody's wet down there about? Vikings? The new Vikings? <laughs> Is that it? No, it's not that. It's not that. It's not Vikings. It's a spinoff. Vikings Valhalla? Right. Is it's it? Everybody's like yeah. gone crazy about it. It takes place 100 years after the Vikings uh, show. Oh, okay. Well, I don't care about Vikings. So anyway, you were saying? D.B. Cooper was a Viking. That's one of my next point was very, uh, it's a little known fact. But can I, can I just clarify something about the parachute? God damn it. Yes. Go so ahead. They, did, they unintentionally gave him a dummy shoot? Unintentionally, yes. Because what happened was... As so I, if he had had a hostage, that person was dead. If the first shoot didn't open, because it was the reserve shoot that was the dummy shoot. Oh, so, the reserve. Oh. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so what happened was... This is related, but kind of off topic a little bit. I mentioned earlier he wouldn't take the military... So Mm -hmm. they tried to get them originally from the military base, which I just mentioned a minute ago was close by and he wanted no part of that. So they went to a flight school and they had to, the guy made them pay for the parachutes. They actually had to buy them. There's a hostage situation. Do you have a credit card, please? Yeah. Yeah, of course I would. They're expensive though, in all fairness. But the guy who owned the, I saw him in a documentary, but the guy who owned the flight school in 2013 was found dead in his house with blunt force trauma. 
to the head. And right away, people went nuts saying it was something to do with the, the D.B. Cooper case. And then later on, the police basically figured out uh, that it was probably a home invasion that went wrong. But mm-hmm. anyways, that has really nothing to do with what we're no, talking about. No, interesting side note. Little Part of the lore. Fun fact. No, people who are really into the story would definitely go, hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. What is that noise? Do you hear thunder? Yeah, it's my children. They're running above my head. It's the passion in my heart for this topic. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, basically, uh, from these details, and you see how much thought he put into it, uh, he obviously had a knowledge of planes and the procedures and practices of air travel. During the hijacking, Cooper was described uh, by the flight attendants as calm, even cordial. After a second drink, he purchased it and tried to tip Mucklow, the the flight attendant, uh, tried to give her the change. And while the plane was grounded and they were refueling, he insisted that the crew be fed and even offered to pay for their meals. Oh. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. He's very Robin Hoody. He's a good criminal. So yeah. that makes you go, Is did he put so much thought and was so confident in his plan that he was just that relaxed that he's like, oh, I'm going to buy people supper? You know, like it's, it's pretty interesting to think because of, apparently he didn't raise his voice once. Like he was just very, very, they described him as almost I'm going to hold on friendly. to this, but this is making me think of not a specific person, but the type of person it could be. I'll hold on to that. Until we get to theories. Yes. Yeah, but this is, this is, this is resonating with me, everything you're saying. So moving on to like without a trace, people are completely divided about his fate. Many people believe that there was no way he could have survived uh, a jump like that. The shoot Cooper chose to use, and this is why the military won, and there were two shoots, and the one he chose, this leads people to believe that maybe he didn't know what the hell he was talking about, because the shoot he chose had no steering capability at all. It couldn't be guided. Like, you were basically at the mercy of the wind and the shoot. And he jumped, okay. in a, he jumped in a suit and loafers with no helmet, no gloves. The $200,000 he received, because we were talking about this earlier with the, the amount of money and why he didn't ask for more, was $10,000. Was, he was given $10,020 bills. So okay. the, the money in the bag would have weighed 23 pounds, and the bag was a money bag, like a bank bag. So it had no handles on it was freezing that night. He had no So like gloves. one of those like canvassy bags like the Monopoly guy has with the dollar sign yeah, on it. Yeah, exactly. It was like a cartoon bag with like the dollar sign stencil yeah. on the side. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was dark and raining that night, um, freezing actually, uh, with heavy oh. cloud cover. So he would not have been able to see any of the, the city lights or any, any sort of lights below. Um, and according mm. to calculations, although many people think the calculations are incorrect, he would have landed in a very very remote area in Washington. Uh, mountains, forest, you know, a lot of people think that maybe he may have landed in one of the two lakes uh, that they were close by uh, to and over and okay. probably either drowned mm. or, or froze to death. That would still be pretty long odds, though, to land in a lake from that height. Yeah, but even if he did, I mean, the water would have been freezing, but he he would have been like a popsicle by the time he got to the yeah. ground. because he, was... he planned this really well. It was a very well thought out plan. And you not think he would have factored all of that into the plan? You would think. Well, and that's where you get into the people that think he he did survive. They believe he was a very skilled paratrooper, probably former military, and that he would have landed. And exactly what Riley just said, where it would have been planned and he knew what he was doing. 
took the shoot that he took for a very specific reason. Maybe he had more familiarity with it. Who knows? Uh, but they think he landed and walked out of those woods and is alive and well today. Although even though we discussed, you know, he would be almost 90, 95, almost 96 by this age. I just think it's strange that if they have a general idea of where this happened, Mm-hmm. You would think after all this time, they would have found some evidence of the mm-hmm. parachute or the, a body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he must be the target of treasure seekers, right? I, funny you mentioned that. I did I did watch, there is a documentary that's on uh, HBO Max in the States on Crave in Canada, which is called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. It deals a lot with the suspects, but there's also people that have, you know, have theories and are looking for them. There's this one guy who's retired military and lives in that area. And all he does is basically walk through the woods looking for traces of them. Well, yeah, because Sean, there must have been people like, because when, when um, Dan and I do our, you know, our regular shows and discuss things, there are people who are fanatic. And so there must be somebody who's like, who's done like, okay, the plane was here. The wind speed was here. He weighed this much. So we do the physics. This is where he landed. Like there must have been these people out there going to those lengths. Oh, there's absolutely those people uh, to the point that, I mean, he's, he very much, you mentioned Robin Hood earlier, uh, Riley, and he's very much kind of thought that way, although he didn't give money to the poor or anything, but he's, he's kind of looked upon as like a folk hero, like a hero, uh, that he was actually able to get away with this. A lot of it probably has to do with the fact that nobody was actually harmed. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. didn't blow up the plane. He was nice to everybody. And then, uh, you know, he, he's disappeared. Right. So talk about, I said, without a trace. So without a trace, not quite. So on February the 10th, 1980, an eight-year-old boy found bundles of $20 bills totaling $5,800. They had degraded or they decomposed or were rotting uh, quite a bit. But um, the serial numbers matched the ones from the Cooper stash. Oh, oh my God. And it was found next to the Columbia River, uh, which oddly enough, I'm not going to get too much into this part because there's so many theories about how the money ended up there because it's about 27 kilometers or 20 miles or whatever away from where they thought he would have landed. And they've said that it could have ended up in water and then gone downstream, although the river flows the other. It's it's really bizarre. There's a lot of theories about that. But yeah, some people believe this evidence helps support the theory that he didn't survive, that the money had just fallen out and traveled by water. Uh, I saw one theory. Uh, it was talking about the, the fact that the water was going the wrong way, where they thought essentially that his body and parachute might have been stuck in the propeller of like because it was a large shipping lane that he might have been dragged to close to there and that's where the money came out and the rest of them and the money and the body and all that is at the end uh, at the bottom of the river but yeah there was fifty eight hundred dollars in cash other people believe that he buried it there to throw the police off so interesting mm-hmm. i wonder if the kid got to keep it yes he did uh they had to really? analyze it for a little while yeah but the money was falling apart and i read something like but I'm it's like, still currency right how, don't they uh, yeah how is he gonna spend that and that sort of thing and then there was an explanation that uh they were able to work out something between the kid and the insurance company or an insurance oh. company but he uh he did end up with the money and then not only that so the the kid is basically my age now and then uh, something like five or six years ago, he, he kept some of the money instead of spending it. And 
auctioned it off for like I think I read a hundred and thirty seven thousand dollars wow. or something like that in two thousand and thirteen. That's so, so smart. Yeah, he made his money. Yeah. So the, the the discovery of these bundles led to new searches around that area, but they haven't been able to find anything because Mount St. Helens on May the 18th, 1980 erupted and likely destroyed uh, any of the remaining clues uh, about that in that oh area. Oh my God, that's right. They had to deal with uh, magma. Burning up magma. Hello, this is my daughter, magma. Hello. <laughs> I'd like to marry you so hard. So the only thing he left on the plane, uh, we talked about this before, were his tie, uh, the mother of pearl tie clip, and eight. And some people think the brand of cigarette he was smoking was important. They were Rally cigarette butts, which is a brand I'm not familiar with. At I remember all Rally. In the States. But apparently it was, those were cigarettes that were smoked by a higher class of people. It wasn't <laughs> a middle class that spoke smoked those so uh that was mentioned and then the only other thing that was found and it would have been so cool i wonder if i did not read if this guy was able to get this and an auction it off or it remained in evidence but uh, a hunter in those woods later found uh, a sign a placard from the plane which was the sign with the instruction on how to lower those aft stairs which because he had left the stairs open it probably just vibrated and rattled and flew out of there so uh, Hunter found that in the woods. So those are the only things that were ever found there. Uh, only two traces. No body, no clothes, no parachute, not the briefcase, and not the remaining $194,200 were ever found. And before anyone asks, they did have the serial numbers and were looking for them in circulation, and the money was never, ever spent. So what? The money was never spent. How can they be so sure, though? Well, it's like some little convenience store in buttfuck Iowa. and Because eventually that money goes into a bank, right? But they don't scan money. They don't track money. I don't know. I think they can, though. So that corner store gets it and eventually brings to a bank, and money eventually is taken out of circulation they must they must Can't scan all of every single serial number wow well they must of... have a way of recording what they've got right because money then goes out In of circulation 70s? no okay, i don't so think what, so what i'll tell you is he wanted non-sequential is that yeah non-sequential yes, yeah. bills but what the bills did have in terms of the serial number is they all started with the letter l so that's how they were able to track them, apparently, and okay. keep an eye out for them. But everything that I found stated that the money was never spent. So that yeah, I think they can. No, but you know what? There's so many variables. What if you go abroad and go yeah. to a currency exchange? Exactly. What if you launder it? I mean, there are so many ways. Well, there's international banking laws, though. Think at that time they had the sophistication and capability to track currency, even if it was spent worldwide. American dollars would end up back in America or in some bank that the Americans have access to in international. I don't think so, Dan. Not in the 70s. What would they use to track it? I don't know. Ledgers? A bunch of women, a bunch of women, like going through bill by bill going, hey, oh, okay, calling, you know, like there's no scanning. I just there's think no it was such a big business, like with organized crime and everything where there was uh, counterfeit money. And I, I think, well, that'd be an interesting side yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, from watching Ozark, I now think I know everything there is to know about laundering. Yeah, me too. Watching what? Watching what? Ozark. I've never watched that. It's you on should. Netflix. It's fantastic. I hate Jason Bateman. Like I, I love hate. Jason Bateman. I think he's just uh, the same in everything. I've never seen because him. Because... 
anyone who's who's not Scott Bio you think is trash. And no, that- honestly, I don't think Jason. I've never seen Jason Bateman occupy anything. Like he's not he's not Gary Oldman. So this is what I'll say about what Riley just said about uh, Jason Bateman. One of the reasons I love him in Ozark is because he doesn't change at all between comedy and drama, but it still completely works in Ozark. Like the delivery and the way uh, his cadence is all, and it totally works. Give a watch if if you watch the first episode of Ozark. If it doesn't hook you, then you'll never get into it. But it's I'm hard pressed to remember a show that I watched the first episode of that drew me in oh, okay. instantly. Because like I got to tell you, I hated Arrested Development more than Life Itself. I love Arrested Development. I hated. It's the kind of comedy that just makes me want to like throw a Molotov cocktail. I also didn't like him in The Outsider, the Stephen King thing. I thought no. he doesn't make any effort to be anything but himself. Like, I don't understand actors who don't work. They just learn the lines and they're just themselves. You know, like The Rock. They just don't. We've talked about this. It's the movie star quality. They don't make any effort to be a character. No, I'm a a fan of Jason Bateman and I like his podcast. I like the podcast Smartless. I listen to that too. He does a podcast? Their podcast is probably one of the most popular right now. His podcast sponsors ours. Can you imagine? So... Let's get back to this. So, yeah, otherwise we're going to be here for hours. So let's move on to suspects, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, And I'll keep this somewhat brief, as brief as I can, which means not brief at all, because any documentary you watch about D.B. Cooper, it's going to give you three suspects, and they're always going to be three different suspects. Mm -hmm. And uh, it honestly looked for a a period of time. It seemed like the cool thing to do was to confess to being D.B. Cooper on your deathbed because the amount of people that have confessed or claim to be db cooper is it's ridiculous but here are the people that i thought were either potentially could be db cooper for obvious reasons or they're just fun because they're so wacky Uh, the first one and this is we'll save it for theories and thoughts uh at the end but uh was richard mccoy and he was an army veteran served two tours of duty in vietnam as a demolition expert and later with the green berets as a helicopter pilot did military service in the utah national guard and was an avid recreational skydiver with aspiration to becoming a, a utah straight state trooper he bragged to a friend after the db cooper incident uh, that he could have pulled it off and how he would have done it mm-hmm. and then genius that he is on april the 7th 1972 mccoy did just that <laughs> he uh he hijacked a plane and parachuted out of it with five hundred thousand dollars and righted some of cooper's wrongs by asking for a bag with handles but he also left behind the note that he had written and the magazine he was reading with his fingerprints all over it. Uh. And uh, his buddy that he had bragged to turned him in when he heard about the hijacking. He was sentenced to 45 years in jail, escaped twice, and then was killed in a shootout with police after his second capture. He did strongly resemble the the description and the sketch of Cooper. When you look at them side by side. Ah. When when you say demolitions expert, I immediately picture like tough, you know, with a cigar hanging out of his mouth and kind of Sam Elliott vibe. You know, that really gritty, you know, I've seen it all kind of guy. Yeah. And his last name's always Bikowski. (laughs) Bukowski, come here, god damn it. All right, uh, so uh, another one was Kenneth Peter Christensen, um, enlisted in the Army in 1944, trained as a paratrooper. 
you'll see a theme here, a lot of uh, paratroopers and skydivers. Uh, World War II uh, deployed in 45, made a lot of training jumps while stationed in Japan. Uh, after leaving the army, this is interesting, he joined Northwest Orient, the airline, in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant and then a purser, and he was based in Seattle. He was 45 oh. years old at the time of the hijacking, although he was shorter. He was five foot eight. But honestly, when you're looking at somebody, especially when they're sitting most of the time, the difference between 5'8 and 5'10, come on. You know what I mean? Most people that are 5'8 will tell you they're 5'10. I, I actually was once engaged to someone, and I didn't realize they were four foot four. You thought they were 5'9". Yeah, yeah, they finally stood up, and I was like, what the fuck? And you left them at the altar in the Shire. Yeah. And, uh, okay, uh, he was also thinner and then uh, lighter uh, skin than eyewitness descriptions of Cooper. Uh, he did smoke like a chimney and displayed a fondness for bourbon. The initial airline attendant, the this I don't want to say stewardess, the flight attendant did tell the reporter that Photos of Christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than any of the other suspects she had been shown. Okay. And his brother, <laughs> his brother after his death, not his own death, obviously, uh, was the one who brought him to the FBI's attention after watching uh, the episode of Unsolved Mysteries about D.B. Cooper. No, oh, that show, man. That show. That we show. We know Riley's a fan of the old one, but not the new one. I find the new one's a little overworked. Come on, it is. But you, but you like the Robert Stack era. On Don't Soul you? Masters. Yeah, of course. Oh, God, it's amazing. Yeah. And those those, and those and beautiful, heartwarming ones at the end when they were like, update. And then they tell you about the people that found each other. Or yeah. you, since we broadcast this, we caught the killer. Hello, I'm Robert Stack. What, when did Robert Stack sound like that? I'm going to tell you a story tonight. That's going to blow your mind. Something of Robert Stack and Don Knotts had a child. So the next one, uh, here we go. Barbara Dayton was the next, the next suspect. Barbara? Uh, yes. Dayton was a recreational pilot who underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969 Whoa. and changed her name to Barbara. She claimed to have staged the Cooper hijacking two years later, presenting as a man in order to get back at the airline industry and the FAA, whose uh, rules and conditions had prevented her from becoming an airline pilot. She said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn, Oregon, a suburban area of North Port, uh, south of Portland, and then immediately recanted her entire story after learning that hijacking charges could still be brought against her. <laughs> uh, and she also did not match the physical description at all. And the FBI never really took her serious as a suspect. But She sounds very brave to um, be sort of public about gender reassignment way back then. 1969. Yeah, like, yeah. man, yeah, that was ahead of the curve. Wow, yeah. good for her. Lynn Doyle Cooper is the next one. A leather worker and Korean War veteran was brought forth as a suspect uh, as recently as 2011 by his niece, Marla Cooper. And this suspect is featured quite prominently in the, the mystery of uh, D.B. Cooper, that documentary I was talking about. Uh, his niece, Marla Cooper, uh, is an eight-year-old. She recalled Cooper and another uncle planning something very mischievous and involving the use of expensive walkie-talkies. 
Oh. Yeah, if they were cheap walkie-talkies, it's not them. But you get the expensive ones, then, you know, suspicion arises. So they were in Oregon, 150 miles southeast of Portland. Uh, the next day, Flight 305, which was, D.B. Cooper's flight, was hijacked. And the uncles were out turkey hunting, and L.D. Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt. He said the result of an auto accident. And later, Marla claimed that her parents came to believe that L.D. was the hijacker, and... This is uh, something I was going to talk about later, but I'll mention it with uh, this suspect. That This was quite interesting. She recalled that her uncle, who died in 1999, was obsessed with a Canadian, French-Canadian comic book hero named Dan Cooper that had oh. been around during World War II. And one of his thumb, his uh, comic books were thumbtacked to the wall. And I've seen many of the covers of these comic books. Right. And in almost every cover, Dan Cooper is diving out of an airplane. Oh, that's cool. man. That's pretty intriguing. That's pretty intriguing, yeah. So, and I think the FBI, before, uh, we'll get to the FBI in a minute and where the status of the, the case is now, but they actually seriously considered him. Uh, based on her testimony. So she's convinced that her uncle was uh, the uh, was D.B. Cooper. And then Dwayne Weber's the last one I'm going to talk about, and he's featured in the HBO Max documentary as well. The reason I'm going to talk about him is more because of his wife. It's worth it to watch The Mystery of D.B. Cooper just to see Dwayne Weber's wife talk about why she thinks her husband was D.B. Cooper. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. She's a sweet old lady, but uh, you'll see what I mean when you watch it. So she says that he confessed on his deathbed. He basically called her over and said, I, I have something I have to tell you. And uh, she uh, she said, what's that? And he said, I'm I'm Dan Cooper. And she had no idea who Dan Cooper was. She's like, huh? <laughs> and he's like, ah, yeah, F it. I'll take it to my grave. And then he died. Uh, so uh, after, the, <laughs> I know, and to hear her talk about it, you're just like, okay. She actually has a, a younger man who lives with her who is her referred to as her memory man. Like he fills in, like she's clearly elderly and her mind is not where it used to be and she forgets a lot of stuff and he fills in the blanks and he's a... I bet that's not all he fills in. Well, seriously, didn't you think that? No, I did not. The difference between us, Riley, is we think it, you say it. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten that before. <laughs> well, no, but you said this younger man who lives with her and, and, and like, come on. But he's a D.B. Cooper enthusiast or like aficionado, whichever uh, you want to, and he... Basically, yeah, it fills in a lot of facts for you. You'll have to watch the documentary. Okay, I will. But a couple of interesting things. She says that he confessed on his deathbed. After his death, she found out, like, she found, like, passports and licenses under different names that weren't his. So she had no idea. She met him when he was older, uh, and she was quite a bit younger than him. But then she found out he had been incarcerated and had this, like, long criminal record and criminal past. Uh, and then he claims, or she claims, sorry, that he took her on a road trip uh, about a year before Cooper's money was found uh, next to the lake and took her to that location and drove all through that oh. area. And then they checked into a hotel. He disappeared for hours and then showed up later 
covered in dirt as though he had been digging. And then he had a couple of drinks, and she will proudly show the picture. She shows it in the documentary. She took a picture of him yelling Geronimo, which was a popular jumping expression back in the day. And he's obviously in a jumping pose. And uh, that's convinced her that he was D.B. Cooper. Uh, Like I said, she's a sweet elderly lady, but... She's convinced that, you know, Dwayne was D.B. Cooper and uh, he was a chain smoker. He drank bourbon. And this part I did kind of find interesting. She had no idea who D.B. Cooper was. So after her husband's death, she went to the local library in their town, uh, took out a book on D.B. Cooper and the hijacking. When she opened the Mm -hmm. book, she found notes in the margin that were in her husband's handwriting. This is very compelling evidence, Sean. Yeah, that's, that's pretty. And he also strongly he was 45 years old in 1971 and did strongly resemble the sketch of db cooper as well so the whole criminal background that didn't know about the alternate life he did have a military background as well and jumping and the, yeah the handwriting and all that so she's 100 percent convinced you know you can tell with her it's not a she's not out for publicity or anything like that she's like genuinely convinced that her husband was db cooper Yeah, so those are basically the suspects that I decided to cover. There's hundreds more. Uh, Like I said, a lot of deathbed confessions and, you know, to the point that the FBI was just like stopped investigating them. There was that many. After, there were a lot of copycats after D.B. Cooper. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the one we talked about, McCoy, who people thought was D.B. Cooper. But there's too many to mention. And uh, they decreased considerably in 1973 two years after when airlines then began checking luggage. Mm -hmm. So think about that. It's two years after D.B. Cooper. Like a guy gets on a plane with a bomb. There's been a bunch of copycats in those two years. And only after two years, they're finally like, maybe we should take a look at what people are bringing onto the plane. Yeah. Yeah, Those those x-ray machines. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. It's, It's remarkable when you think back to how innocent we were as a culture. Such a different world. A very different world, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to get into the copycats because there's tons of them, but I do want to mention my favorite copycat. This And this is what I'll end on because this, this story made me laugh. <laughs> so, <laughs> this, this guy's name was Glenn K. Tripp. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, he, I believe it was in, it was in 1980, I believe, he seized a Northwest Orient flight 608 at Seattle Tacoma Airport. So right in the D.B. Cooper country, demanding $600,000, $100,000 by an independent account, two parachutes, and the assassination of his boss. <laughs> so he wanted $600,000, two parachutes, and someone to kill his boss. Yes. Okay. It gets better. Um, <laughs> while this was happening, a quick thinking, very smart flight attendant secretly uh, dumped a bottle of Valium into Tripp's alcoholic beverage. But he still managed a 10-hour standoff <laughs> on Valium. Okay. During which... Trip reduced his demands from $600,000 to parachutes and the assassination of his boss to he wanted three cheeseburgers oh. and a car to escape. 
was it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I bet you, oh, sorry, if they had waited another two hours, he probably just would have been like, give me the car and I'll hit a drive through. I don't even, I don't even care anymore. So yeah, I thought that was amazing. Um, he was obviously, they gave him the car. He was apprehended, got away for some reason. He would later attempt to hijack the same Northwest flight, uh, two years, three years later in 1983. God, really? And this time, yeah, this time he de- demanded to be flown to Afghanistan. And when the plane landed in Portland, he was shot and killed by FBI agents. So oh. that part's not that funny, but, uh, the volume thing and the three cheeseburgers did make me, uh, laugh quite a bit. I hope they didn't just kill him indiscriminately. I hope that he had a gun out and he was going to shoot them at least. Like, I hope they were not just being overly zealous. They thought it was a gun and they shot him, but it was actually a cheeseburger. I was going to say that. I was going to say that. Good I love the fact that they drugged him so heavily and he still like managed to keep on trucking. 10 hours on Valium. But, you know, he's like, uh, you know, he just got really mellow, apparently. <laughs> I'm not out to inconvenience anyone. Sean, anymore. how come you didn't mention the uh, possibility that it was Loki? Well, Dan, I'm not done, but thanks. Uh, that was going to be in our little trivia part was, of course, D.B. Cooper uh, was in the Loki TV show. And Tom Hiddleston uh, was uh, apparently uh, D.B. Cooper. So this is interesting. I did not actually know this, but the D.B. Cooper case was actually officially closed by the FBI in 2016. And it closed as a cold case, like it's just cold and it's done? They're still accepting info and tips, but they are no longer actively investigating the case. And to this day, obviously, it remains unsolved. And that is the D.B. Cooper story, gentlemen. It's the husband of the memory man, Chick. I think it's the um, the, the, the two brothers there, the, and he liked the Dan Cooper comic books. What was his name? Uh, the That was L.D. Yeah, uh, L.D. Cooper. And then, Riley, you were talking about the, the memory man one. So yeah. that's Dwayne Weber. Who do you think? Yeah. I thought... It was McCoy, Richard McCoy, who was the guy who did the the demolition expert. The who, first one you mentioned. Who said that he could have pulled off the Cooper one. But the thing that makes me think it wasn't him was, so he was smart enough the first time to take the yeah. note, but not the second time. And so I don't know. I mean, when you look at what the weather was like that night. I mean, I think there's a very good possibility. I hate to, you know, make it boring, but I think it's there's a very good possibility that that he probably died. And those woods, they're so remote. He could have been eaten, you know, by animals. But my only issue with that is if you have gone to the levels of thinking of mm-hmm. micromanaging every aspect. That's what I say. Yeah, right? exactly. You did say this earlier. True. Yep, yep. I mean, all evidence points towards this person knew what they were doing in terms of parachuting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saying no, no gloves or I, you can survive. You don't need a helmet to survive. If you have a bad landing, it helps. But really, it, it may be hitting branches and stuff. Yeah. He could have easily had gloves on him. He could have even had warmer clothing underneath his suit. We don't know what he was wearing. Like if he had, you know, thermal underwear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's w- workarounds with all of that. So I don't know. He could have even, is it possible that he, he had a, a bag on him that he put the money in? No one saw him, what he did with the money, right? After. So, you know, I, I did think about that. Like for maybe he... You know, maybe he did have other clothes underneath his clothes. Maybe he took the clothes he was wearing off. Maybe that's why the tie came off. Maybe he put the other clothes in a bag 
or in the because no one was in there there was no cameras there was no people so nobody really knows what happened once the flight attendant once the flight attendant went in there and closed the curtain and shut the door who knows the other piece i was going to say about the parachute is if i and and if we have any listeners that are experts in this and by no means i am uh, am i sorry uh but Military chutes, from what I understand, yes, you can steer them, but they're also designed to go down fast. The landings are harder and require more expertise in order to land them, whereas in a civilian parachute would be slower. Which you would want if you were going into a heavily wooded area. Yeah, you want a slow decline. Yeah, and again, I, this is, I think I'm what I'm saying is is accurate. You can still steer. You know, now they have the, the, the cords, right? You pull left or right and it changes, it dips the wings. But you can actually grab the lines and pull, yank on them to alter your path through mm-hmm. whatever. I don't know. I mean, 10,000 feet. What time of year? This is November. Uh, it was November the 24th. Yeah, North, so and it's, it's going to be very cold. It's Washington State. That's cold state. It was very cold, yeah. Yeah. Very, very cold. And it was raining. But why pick, you go to all this this planning, you would think he would also be thinking, it's going to be cold when I leave this plane. And I'm going to be jumping into a wooded area. I mean, I'm sure he had a good knife on him to cut the lines if he got caught in a tree. Or, I, I don't know. He it, knew yeah. the route. So you, you had mentioned before he knew the route. Yeah. He knew exactly where he he knew exactly where he wanted to go. He knew the height and the speed. So I'm wondering if he knew exactly if he knew he knows the route, then he would know roughly where he would be when he jumped. He would probably have some semblance of what the winds were like. I'm thinking he had a designated area, and maybe he had someone waiting for him too to help him when he landed. And then it's easy to dispose of all the other stuff. The weird thing is, why didn't he spend the money? Yeah, the accomplice thing, I mean, some people have brought that up, but that theory doesn't really work because of the fact that he had no control over the shoot. So there was there would be no way for uh, an accomplice to kind of know where he was going to Well, land. that's what I'm wondering if he did have some control over the shoot. I just don't know enough about parachutes to even, to even you know, pause it about it. Yeah, everything I've read from people who know what they're talking about when it comes to parachutes said there's no way he would be able to. Uh, he would have. Well, you guys, to- you know what we have. You know we haven't brought to the table. This is the weird, after all. Dan and Sean, yeah, what where, I know where this is going. Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I'm not even kidding. I actually googled that. I googled <laughs> DB Cooper aliens, and nothing came up. Okay, so the aliens are out of this particular equation. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's the you know what every single candidate that you've brought forward has their merits. It's like a really difficult job interview. Um, they all bring something to the table. So I, I I don't know, Dan. What are you doing? You look like you're having a really busy day at work. I'm researching. If you can steer those, they were called, if it's this kind, it was a ram parachute that was developed in the, that started being used in the 1970s. And it's got like lots of different lines, but two main points that attached to your harness. And you, I think you could tug on them. To the darkness, into the darkness. And they're round, right? They're circular. They're not like the, the rectangular shape that the, that the, the military might have. Sorry, that was one of the things that was brought up though, was he was given two shoots and one of them was actually controllable or you could stay and the one wasn't. And that's why they were saying maybe he didn't know what he was doing because the one he selected was the one that you could not control. Oh, he would not overlook that. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. 
it's too like we're all stuck in the fact that it's meticulously planned thing. Yeah, so they're the round ram ones, and you can steer them by by pivoting your center of gravity, but they're not great. And somebody on the ground would have to have a beacon, and I can't believe nobody would have seen it because he's coming from quite a height, so there would have to have been a big. He needed a target, and so somebody on the on the ground would have to have one of those. You know, those giant lights they have at movie premieres or something like that to be seen from that altitude, right? Yeah, that's actually one thing I did not mention that was in there, uh, was that they did have a couple of jets that were scrambled that kind of went out to try and find the plane and look for him, and they couldn't see anything coming out of the back of the plane. That's how dark it was that night. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Sean, that was awesome. I love that. That's so great. Well, thank you. I uh, yeah, it was it was fun to uh, fun to do. I mean, I knew the overall you know story. I, I knew what that was. And I knew the basic know, strokes of it yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. The broad. Yeah, strokes. me too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I say basic the, strokes. <laughs> I still can't believe how different Sean looks with that big beard. Yeah, you look really like rugged and ready to go. Yeah. Without the beard, you kind of look like a giant baby. With the, without the beard, people you say I look like Caillou. Remember Caillou, the cartoon. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, great. That's funny. That's amazing. Keep the beard. Yeah, well, I'm going to talk to my wife. She might disagree with you. Oh, that's probably all over with anyway, isn't it? <laughs> no one told me. Hasn't she had like 10 kids? Like, mm. No, we've only three so far. Only three. Um, but no, it was like I was saying, I, I knew the overall story, but I didn't know the... You know the more in-depth the kind of intricacies and all the the kind of cool details so this it was a lot of fun to research and uh a lot of fun to do and uh, do you want to know something i'm embarrassed to say but i thought up until this evening that he was on a plane with other people yeah i thought that i thought that too i didn't know i thought he just walked onto a plane with other people and then parachuted off with money and i thought I, he had a mustache yeah i did like i like I said, I didn't know the details about like the landing and the refueling. Yeah, that I didn't know. Thought was I was kind of in the same boat where I like I knew the movie poster, I knew the story, and you know I'd seen things here and there as a kid. But again, I didn't know the whole, just how much it was completely planned out. I I didn't realize yeah the amount of thought that was put into it, which makes sense yeah. if you're going to do something like that. <laughs> so. Yeah, so you've uh, you've given us a completely yeah. different picture of this. Thank you very much, uh, Sean. We'll try to have you on before our one thirtieth. Sean, okay. before before Dan starts to wrap everything, I know we're gone very long, but I have to ask you one quick thing, just for our listeners and for my benefit, because when you mentioned Ghosts of the Abyss last time, as you know, mm-hmm. I downloaded it, and now I'm obsessed with it and watch it from time to time because it's so there's something about it. What was the name of that HBO Max thing again? On this, on D.B. Cooper. On D.B. Cooper. Uh, the mystery of D.B. Cooper. Okay, so I'm going to probably search that out, and our listeners might want to as well. So the mystery of D.B. Cooper. Good, thank you. My pleasure. Is it as riveting as Ghosts of the Abyss? Not even close. Okay, uh, damn. Because it's not about the Titanic. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness, could you imagine if D.B. Cooper had jumped off the Titanic? I just got excited. I just got so excited. I just got so excited. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll 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 put a pin in that and maybe revisit that story in a future episode of the Weird, where we look at what if weird things happened. Uh, Sean, again, thank you so much, and uh, let's not wait thirty episodes uh, to get you back on. I know that Absolutely. we have been talking about getting you on sooner, and and so we expect to see you back uh, in the next uh, in the next short little while. 
so thanks again for coming on. Great listener. Thanks so much for supporting Weird. We so uh, enjoy the feedback we get from you. So if you have uh, ideas for future shows or if you'd like to reach out and, and chat with Riley or I, uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, just search The Weird Podcast and uh, you'll find on the Instagram site pictures of our show. Uh, so thanks again for listening and remember, please feel free to share the word of the weird with the world. Tell people about this great little show that, uh, that we are, uh, that we are putting out on the intra waves, interwaves, interwaves. I'm going to call it interwaves. Sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. 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 Everybody. Uh, thanks for being with us, Sean. Once again, thanks for doing this work and gracing us with your presence. We really appreciate it. It's always a blast. I love this and look forward to it every time. So anytime you guys want me to come back, I'm happy to do so. Well, maybe we'll get you to do a rebuttal of Dan's Jack the Ripper episode. How about Why that? don't you want me to fact check it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that to you, Riley. I'm gonna get someone, an expert in, in a whole bunch of yours and and have them fact check it. <laughs> don't uh, did you you guys do what you normally do at the end where you thought you said who you thought Jack the Ripper was and the theory that you because I would love to hear what uh, that was. I thought it was the uh, the Russian Kaminsky Kaminsky. Okay. That's I don't idea. know anything about the case, so I don't. You had a theory that you did you did say in the episode who you thought it was, but it was fresh because I just talked about it. I think I narrowed it. I kind of did what you did, Sean, mm-hmm. where I, I said, here's who I think it really is. and then But I threw in some interesting ones too, like Prince uh, Albert uh, Victor. Albert and, and yeah, like I said, but I don't think it's that. And, Sir William Gull, which is. Yeah, the and the painter there, the British painter. There's a lot. There was so much I could. It was the same thing where I just I picked like six or seven and then went with those. I can't wait to hear it. So thanks again, everybody. And we can't wait to see you. So join us again next week for more Tales of the Weird. Good night. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Well, sitting here talking with D.B. Sweeney. And I have to tell you, the first time I ever saw your name without knowing who you were, D.B. Sweeney. And in my mind, I saw an older, bald-headed man. For some really? reason, I don't know why. You have a future as a character actor. <laughs> but you're anything. You're. I don't. Even, I don't know your age, but you're young. Yes. Do you tell your age or not? Sure. Twenty-five. Twenty-five. You and Michael Fox, Michael J. Fox, and Matthew Broderick. You're all the same age. We are. Yeah, you're all twenty-five. 